So as I said, uh, we are continuing our series called Formed. Um, it's this idea of looking at a different spiritual practice each week, and the idea is formed practices of love for the life of the world. All right, did that feel a little awkward perhaps? All right, I'm guessing maybe so. I felt awkward doing that. Uh, but this morning we are talking about renewed talking and the practice of silence. And that might just showcase for all of us, like we're not very good at it. Like I feel really weird being in this spot of just shutting my mouth for a moment. Um, maybe you felt sort of weird, like what's going on? Did the stream freeze? Is Jamie blinking? I'm not sure what's actually uh, happening uh, right now as I just sort of stared into the camera. But this is a hugely important practice. And so oftentimes it's grouped with silence and solitude or solitude and silence. And last week we looked at solitude. And so if you missed that uh, teaching, you can go back, uh, catch the podcast, go to our website. You can find all of that but this morning, it's a related theme. It's this practice uh, that the Lord invites us into. And again, all of these things are uh, opportunities for us to engage in things that we're doing most of the time anyway. Like there are times, obviously, we're talking as people and sometimes we're silent. And what does it look like to see our talking be renewed in a way that not only brings glory to God, all right, brings joy for us, but also helps us love our neighbor? Because oftentimes when we think of practices and spiritual disciplines, I think there's this popular conception that it's like, all right, I'm gonna get my quiet time, it's me and Jesus, and we'll have that, and we want you to spend time with Jesus. But it's not meant to just sort of end with you. It's actually meant to compel you, to send you back out to love and serve your neighbor. Because Jesus summarized the, the whole point, right? The, whole, the big idea is love God and to love others. And so we wanna look at spiritual practices because they help us actually love our neighbor. And so a goal for us, the Apostle Paul, he's writing in this church in Ephesus and he says this in Ephesians chapter four, it's worth reading all of the verses surrounding, but let me just read one for a moment. Ephesians four, verse 29, it says this, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. What if we could be characterized as a community that lives this out, that embodies this. It would be renewed talking. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. Now, if the qualification for getting up and teaching on this was that there was no corrupting talk in my mouth, I gotta have to go sit down right now or I should just be silent uh, as I was a few moments ago. Like this is something we all struggle with, but there's this, this opportunity that we have and what feeds our renewed talking actually is times of silence. So that it says, as the Apostle Paul, it would be good for building up that it may give grace to those who hear. What if we used our words in such a way that it built others up, that it called them to be more and more who God created them to be? Both the people that you know really well and people that maybe you're just meeting. What would that look like to extend grace, to speak words of grace in a culture that is exhausted? We've just been, and we're running on empty for somebody to speak words 
to you and you to speak words to other people that just tells them there's this grace, there's this opportunity for rest in the finished work of Jesus. You don't have to pretend or perform anymore. You don't have to strive. You can get off that treadmill of performance. That's our opportunity as a church. And so one of the great texts that will help us in this, to really help us identify the power of our words, our speaking, the power of the tongue, and also the problems that come with that is the book of James, and in particular, James chapter three. So I would encourage you to take out a Bible, turn to James chapter three. We're gonna look at the first 12 verses. If you don't have a Bible with you or you wanna follow along even with some of the slides that you'll be able to take notes, go to cpwp.life. Slide over, click over until you find the message notes, all right? And you will uh, find um, the text listed there as well as information, any of that stuff that's on the slide. So let me go ahead and read this. James chapter three, verses one to 12, and then we'll make our way back through this text and use this to kind of set up, okay, then what would the, the spiritual discipline or practice of silence look like in light of these things? So James three, beginning in verse one says, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, also able to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses that they will obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also, though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. Verse six, and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father. And with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. This is the word of the Lord. And church, I wanna invite you to pray with me here that the Holy Spirit might illuminate our minds and our understanding of this text. And so wherever you are, just take a moment and will you pray aloud with me the words that you see on the screen? Holy God, Word made flesh. Let us come to this word open to being surprised. Silence our agendas. Banish our assumptions. Cast out our casual detachment. Confound our expectations. Clear the cobwebs from our ears. Penetrate the corners of our hearts with this word. We know that you can. We pray that you will. And we wait with great anticipation. Amen. 
So look with me here at the first kind of first five verses and through the first part of verse five. I want to talk for a moment about the power of words. And so as James lays this out, I mean, right away, it's, it's pretty tough, particularly he's talking about all of humanity and we all fall short. He lays that on the first couple of verses. And then he even says in, in verse one, uh, which is a verse that I probably don't want on my coffee cup, but it's something that I should pay attention to. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. And so he's even laying out something specific for those who would teach God's word. And so it's a reminder, like right out of the gate, like I fail at this miserably. I am in need of God's grace over and over and over again. And then in the calling, even as teachers to teach this word, then there's this reminder where he says in verse two, he says these words, he says, We're all, we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's actually a perfect man. And we know like everybody fails that test. Everybody is except for Jesus, that our words showcase, even if we feel like our external actions, sometimes like, oh, maybe I'm, I'm doing okay. Like, man, our words, they reveal what's going on at a heart level. And they, if it was just up to us, they would accuse us, they would condemn us. We would be in a really bad spot. And so there's this significance to our words. There's a weightiness to our words. There's a, there really is a call to renew our speaking and our talking. In fact, if we were to go back all the way at the beginning, what we see is a God who creates simply by speaking. Now, we don't possess that power, all right? But the Lord has invited us in as those that are made in his image to be sub-creators. And so in some sense, our words help shape the particular worlds and the spaces that we inhabit. So when God started out in the beginning and said, and God said, let there be light, and God said, and you go through the narrative of Genesis chapter one, he speaks a word and life bursts forth. That's the power that is in God's words. Now I don't possess that kind of power and you don't possess that kind of power, but if we are made in his image, there is some sense here of like, we need to steward well the words that we are given, the words that we speak. But it's also a great reminder for us to stop just in this moment with everything that's going on in the world, all the things that are swirling around, the exhaustion that I have to imagine you feel, the confusion, um, the maybe just like, maybe you're just annoyed, just like, I can't believe all this is happening. I don't know where you're at right now. But I love what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter one, speaks these words about the power of God's word, about how Christ himself is upholding us right now. It says this in Hebrews one, verse three, he, that is Christ, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. If you hear nothing else this morning, just rest in that. He's upholding you right now with everything you've dealt with in the past week, everything that maybe you're anticipating dealing with in the upcoming week, and even the things that you don't even know that are gonna kind of come onto your radar at some point. He's upholding everything by the word of his power. And so right there is even just an invitation like, hey, I'll let God have the word. I'll let God do the speaking and an invitation for us to be silent and to rest. And that's what this invitation throughout this practice really is. And so there's a power to words. I love the way uh, the author Paul Tripp speaks of words. He says it this way. He says, words give life. Words bring death. You choose. What does this mean? It means you have never spoken a neutral word in your life. Your words have direction to them. If your words are moving in the life direction, they will be words of encouragement and of hope and love, peace, unity, instruction, wisdom, and correction. But 
If your words are moving in a death direction, they will be words of anger, malice, slander, jealousy, gossip, division, contempt, racism, violence, judgment, and condemnation. He continues and he says, your words have direction to them. When you hear the word talk, you ought to hear something that is high and holy and significant and important. May God help us never to look at talk as something that doesn't matter. So as we think about that for a moment, your words have direction. Now look back with me at James chapter three here, as we get into to verse three, he starts to use, in fact, throughout these 12 verses, it's just loaded with all kinds of imagery. It's like James here is just like, think of it this way, and it's like this, and it's like this. He's wanting us to understand because this is so important. So he says at the kind of end of verse two, if, if you were able to control your tongue, it'd be like being able to bridle his whole body. Like if you could just control that small part of you, it could literally change everything. And so he says in verse three, he uses this imagery of a horse. He says, if we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. And so it's this imagery that you see here of a bit and a bridle, and it's, it's a way that the one who is riding that particular horse is actually able to control the horse, to lead it in a particular direction. And so we have to see like the tongue is the same thing. And how do we actually control that? Then James uses another image and he begins to speak of a, of a boat, of a ship. And he says this, look at the ships also, verse four, though they are so large and are driven by strong winds. So there are these massive, uh, these massive things out on the water, all right, a lot of weight to them, a lot of size, and then there's strong winds. And yet they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. And so he's likening, he's wanting us to see the importance of that. In studying for this message, I, I came across a, a, a story and began reading up on it um, on the History Channel uh, website. And it's a story out of World War II. It was in 1941 and the Germans had just built this massive battleship and it was its maiden voyage. It was called the Bismarck, all right? And they were setting this out. And here's how the History Channel records it. They said, under the cover of darkness in the early morning hours of May 19, 1941. Here's a picture of this particular ship that's called the Bismarck. Mark, all right, the most formidable battleship to ever have ever been built slipped into the Baltic Sea on its maiden voyage. An ocean-bound castle, the thickly armored Bismarck, was the first full-scale battleship constructed by the German Navy since World War I. Now listen to this. The largest, here's what its purpose was, the largest warship afloat. It broke out into the frigid open waters of the North Atlantic on a top secret mission to attack the Allied convoys crossing the ocean between the United States and Great Britain with oil and food and other supplies. Nazi leaders hoped that their unsinkable state-of-the-art battleship would sever the Allied lifeline and starve the British into submission. So they build this massive thing. They believe it to be unsinkable and they send it out. Now, what's so fascinating is to think like this is its maiden voyage and it's this massively intimidating thing out there on, on the ocean. And there ends up with this confrontation between the allied forces and this gigantic battleship that is the Bismarck. And here's what we read as there were British planes that came closer. Look at this description. It says this, Britain's buzzing biplanes descended like gnats upon Germany's fire spitting steel dragon. 
The courageous pilots in the biplane's open cockpits flew low so Bismarck's sailors couldn't train their guns and the battleship's anti-warcraft defenses had trouble with the bomber's slow speed. British torpedoes from the archaic bombers managed to strike the modern metal behemoth's weakest point, its undefended rudders. The attack tore an enormous hole in Bismarck's hull and disabled its steering mechanism. Capable of only sailing in large circles, the helpless Bismarck spent the night surrounded by only the open ocean and the enemy. Fascinating. You've got these planes that they're, they're not state of the art, all right? They really shouldn't have any business growing up, but there was this place of vulnerability, this place of weakness, and they were actually able to exploit an attack that was the undefended rudder. And here, this massive battleship on its maiden voyage, all right, is just looping around in a circle. It cannot turn in a direction. It can't go in a straight line. This massive thing, the height of a human ingenuity, right? And she's like, this thing is so impressive. But if the rudder went out, as it did, it was laid open, it was laid bare. And the next morning, the British and the Allied forces caused it to sink. So James is saying, this is how important the rudder actually is. There's this power, all right, to our words, to our tongue. Let's not ignore that. And what it leads to then is it begins to lay out for us then, as you can probably already see, there's some problem then with our speaking, with our words, because I can't control my tongue. I mean, the scriptures are telling us that, and it creates all sorts of havoc. Like most of the issues in your life and in my life is because we haven't been able to actually renew our talking to control our tongue. And it leads to all sorts of division. It leads to misunderstanding. It leads to uh, animosity. It leads to all sorts of things that the Lord would want us to move away from so there'd be unity and that there would be compassion and kindness and grace. And so look with me, the back part of verse five through verse 12, the problem that we see of our words. It begins by saying this, how great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire and the tongue is a fire. James doesn't just stop there and be like, yeah, it's kind of important. I mean, like he just piles on. He begins to stack these particular phrases so that you and I might understand. God wants us to understand like how big of an issue this actually is. I mean, this is the sort of imagery here. As you see on your screen, it's just like a raging forest fire. This is what the tongue is capable of. The tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. And the tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life. I mean, we just stop there for a moment and think, wow, like I need to pay attention to this because not only will it stain my entire being, it will actually direct my life in a particular direction. And it's not a direction that I wanna go and it's not a direction you would want to go. And he's telling us if we don't get this under control, it it takes us on this path. It leads us in a particular direction. It leads us to a place of death and devastation. It leads us like the Bismarck, just out there circling about. We might look impressive, all right? We might look sort of intimidating, but the reality is that because of this small member of our body, our tongue, it's gonna lead to death. And then James just keeps going and he says, all right, the entire course of life, and it is set on fire 
by hell. All right. He literally is telling us like this, this part of our body is actually set on fire by hell itself. It's this word Gehenna. It's this trash heap outside of the, this city that constantly smoldered and was on fire, just constantly, consistently burning. That's your tongue. That's my tongue. Maybe a question for us to ask then in this as we consider our words, right? Like sometimes there are people in a way of encouragement, all right? It's like, man, you see this little fire, this ember that's going, and man, you could kind of throw gasoline on that and kind of help it burn. Like that could be a good thing. But more often than not, there's this situation that's already inflammatory, right? And our tendency, my tendency can be rather than bringing water to that to help put that out, I'm actually going to put gasoline on it and make it worse. And so let me ask you, are you using your words as you're speaking, as you're talking, as water or gasoline like if there's this fire that's going we have an opportunity but too often because i think it's so easy it's so tantalizing to sort of just pile on and to add and we just cause the fire to burn further and further and then james tells us in this he's like for every kind of beast um look with me here he says Verse seven, for every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creatures can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. No human being can tame the tongue. So you think about that. You think about taming an animal. We've been living through that the past few months, trying to tame a puppy, all right? Um, there's something cute about that. There's something fun about that. But don't think for a moment that this is like a cute little puppy that you're gonna tame to be able to, to do tricks. Like you see in this picture, it's like, oh, how neat. Like we're gonna tame this thing and it can jump through the hoops that we want it to. That's not how the scriptures describe the tongue. Let me run through just a few things for a moment so that we might actually see like how prone we are to this. One of, the, um, one of the things historically that's been kind of, there's a parallel here is James is oftentimes referred to as almost like the Proverbs of the New Testament. And so it'd be helpful for us to even go back to seeing how often the book of Proverbs speaks about our words, about speaking, about the tongue. No human being can tame the tongue. Look at these Proverbs with me just for a moment. We could spend a lot of time on each of these, but let it be sort of a diagnostic, a mirror that's being held up and be like, oh, do you find yourself susceptible to that? Thinking maybe you could get this under control on your own. These things reveal, as I've studied this and I've read through this and I'm even putting these things to talk about, I'm like, oh, I don't wanna put that one on there. I don't wanna talk about that because it's indicting. I mean, it, it showcases for me like how often I fail. Proverbs chapter 29, verse 11, a fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. How is it with you? Do you give full vent to your spirit? It's not a call to, to never engage or to never sit back. It's not a call to this you know, passive aggressive or anything like that. But there, is the, there are these times once I just wanna give the full vent and I'd let that sort of erupt and happen. It tells us a wise man quietly holds it back. Proverbs chapter 15, verse one, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Think back to conflict and things that you're navigating, things in the past or things as you anticipate this upcoming week. Here's the reality. How much better would things go for us and for people and how would we love our neighbors better if we gave a soft answer that actually turns away wrath? 
It's like putting water on the fire. But a harsh word, it stirs up anger. It's like, forget the water. I got the, you know, I got the can of gasoline here. I'm going to pour it on. Proverbs, we keep going. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 18. There is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Look at that. The imagery there, the pain that is associated with that, our words are significant. They can be used either to bring healing or to literally be like thrusting a sword into your neighbor. And we think about, hey, I'm supposed to love my neighbor. My goodness, like obviously our words have massive implications and massive, um, there's opportunities to love and bring healing, but man, we can get so caught up in just thrusting that particular sword Proverbs chapter 12, again, verse 22. Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who act faithfully are his delight. Lest there be any part of us that thinks, ah, lying's not that big of a deal. It's actually an abomination to the Lord. To speak lies, to withhold truth, all of that. To live in this place of deception, of not living in the place of honesty in the light, it's called an abomination. Proverbs 27, verse 14, whoever blesses his neighbor with a loud voice rising early in the morning will be counted as cursing. Um, this is the case of somebody using the words and they just, they're not reading the room at all. They got no EQ, all right? They might be meaning well by it, but it's possible to even use our words where we're just like, bless you, good morning. And it's like, Everybody else is sleeping or just needs their cup of coffee at this point, And you're just like yelling this out. That's not gonna be received well. So it's possible to even say words that in and of themselves are not offensive, all right? But context matters, right? All of that. I think I've shared this story before, but me walking in as a young kid into my grandparents' house and it literally just burned down and I walked in and I go, oh, I love the smell of fire. Not the right time to say that, right? Um, those aren't bad words in and of themselves, but standing in your grandparents' kitchen that had just been burned to the ground, it's a dumb move, all right? Words matter. Proverbs chapter 18, verse eight, the words of a whisperer are like delicious morsels. They go down into the inner parts of the body. Man, it is tantalizing, isn't it? When we have that little bit of information and we share it and in the church, we might even kind of wrap that up and like, oh, we're really concerned for this person. Maybe, maybe you should pray for this person. But at its root, it's gossip, it's slander, it's mal it's it's from the pit of hell, really. And we're just living that out. And I'm guilty of this. I don't, I don't put these things up here. It's like, oh, follow me because I do this all right. I read this and I'm like, man, like Isaiah chapter six, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. That's the reality of the situation. It's showcasing for us. And then as we look at the last few verses, nine to 12, it reveals this hypocrisy that's in our hearts. Verse nine, with it, we bless our Lord and Father. Think about that. Like we'll engage in a church service, we'll read our Bible, we'll have a great spiritual conversation with a friend. We're blessing the Lord, we're praying. Maybe you're just driving in, in your car and you got worship music on, you're caught up in that and then you get home and it's nothing, it's no longer blessing, right? And it becomes cursing, cursing those that are made in the image of God. With it, we bless our Lord and Father. That's one way the tongue gets used. And with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. And he says, my brothers, and this language throughout here is my brothers and sisters, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? water? He's expecting to say, no, of course not. Does a, can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Like, no, 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 we, we know the answer to that. Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. 
He's showing us, man, there's this hypocrisy. There's something like our words reveal what's going on at a heart level. This is why Jesus would say this in Luke chapter 6, verse 45. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. It reveals a mirror. Let's pay attention. Now, if I just said, all right, blessings, have a good day. Like this leaves us in the spot of like, wait, wait, like what are we supposed to do with that? Like James just kind of lays it out and these proverbs lay it out and it's like, okay, we've got this massive, massive problem and it causes us to go back like no human, no person can tame the tongue. Now, this is where for these last few moments, hear me in this, there's this invitation to the practice then of silence. And sort of very practically, like, let's ask for a moment, like, how does us being silent actually help in this? Because the reality is this. No human being can tame the tongue. But James wants to see, yeah, I can't do it. You can't do it. James couldn't do it. But his brother Jesus could. He's the only one who's actually perfectly tamed the tongue. Like, this is something that God can actually do. And so it causes us to step back for a moment and say, what would it look like for you and I to engage in times of science? And here's what I think this can look like. I think very practically, this can be certainly during times, and there's overlap with these spiritual disciplines. As we've looked at meditation, like you're reading the scriptures in times of prayer and times of solitude to be silent. I would encourage you to try something this week. Like take an hour out of your, your day, all right? And if you've got other people that you live with, all right? Roommates, you've got your spouse, kids, whatever your household looks like to maybe invite them into it. Like, hey, let's spend an hour just not speaking to get us used to that so that in times when it would be better for us to be silent rather than using our words. Like James would tell us, hey, my brothers and sisters, be slow to speak and be quick to actually listen. Well, silence helps us engage. And silence helps us engage and listen in a way, not just we would listen better to other people, but actually then that we would listen to what's going on kind of under the surface, the things that are going on at a heart level that we drown out with our constant talking and our noise and our distraction. It's an invitation in the moment of silence to actually listen to the word that God actually speaks. Because I put before you this question, what drives our talking? I think if we could stop anytime there are words flowing out of our mouth, all right, that are unhelpful, they're not honoring to God, when we're engaged in sinful talk, it's not renewed speech and renewed talking. And we asked ourselves, wait, wait, why am I talking this way? Like, what's going on? Why am I gossiping? Why am I slandering this person? Why am I not speaking the truth? Deep down, there's something that's going on where we are constantly wondering like where we stand in the world. We have got a justification issue. And I use my words, I get defensive and I speak things to justify why I'm right and you're wrong so that I actually might feel good about myself. This is too often what happens with our words. Let me give you an example, all right, where I found this just sort of rising up the other day where I was wanting to use my words to like justify and let people know that I'm a certain type of person in the world. Multiple times throughout the course of a day, you know, drive this in the course of a month, hundreds of different times as I'm exiting my, my neighborhood, all right, um, I'm on this residential road and there is a bike path that like goes across the street that I always have to travel to get out of my, my neighborhood. It's the Katie Way bike trail, if you're familiar with that. 
And now there's all sorts of like, there's this kind of sign in the middle that, you know, you got to yield if you're the, you know, if you're in the vehicle, I get that. I understand that. I want people yielding to me if I'm riding my bike or, or whatever. All right. Um, and there's even like this little button that people are riding their bikes or walking or rollerblading or whatever they're doing can hit and it lights up. So you kind of know somebody's coming 90% of the time. They don't do that. Um, but even so I'm hyper paranoid that I'm going to like blow through that intersection. All right. And there's going to be a person coming. And so I, without fail, all right, slow down. I'm looking both ways multiple times. So I did that. This is like a week or two ago. Did my normal thing. I'm slowing down because there's all this foliage and stuff that, that's there. And it's kind of hard to see. And I'm like, okay, it's clear. And I started to go. And then I hear this voice. And there's this man yelling and screaming at me. And he's throwing his hands up in the air like, what are you doing, right? Well, I had missed him because this was the bike that he was on. It's one of these things. I don't know even what they're called, but they're kind of like seated down like this. Now, if you ride one, there's no problem. I'm just saying with the tree cover and everything, like I just didn't see it. Like I wasn't looking that low to the ground. And here's what was going on. The reason I tell you this, he wasn't at fault there. I felt this need. I literally wanted to stop my car, roll down the window and be like, I'm not the type of person. Like I always look, I'm always on the lookout for you. Like I'm not the kind of person you should be yelling at. I always do the right thing. What's going on there? I felt this need to justify this complete stranger on this bike contraption thing that he's on. Like I wanted him to know you can, you can yell and scream at other people, but don't do it to me because I do the right thing. It's revealing. There's this need to justify. Richard Foster in his book, Celebration of Discipline, said it this way. One reason we can hardly bear to remain silent is that it makes us feel so helpless. We are so accustomed to relying upon words to manage and control others. If we are silent, who will take control? God will take control, but we will never let him take control until we trust him. Silence is intimately related to trust. Silence is one of the deepest disciplines of the spirit simply because it puts the stopper on all self-justification. One of the fruits of silence is the freedom to let God be our justifier. We don't need to straighten others out. Church, what would it look like for us to have renewed talking that is rooted in and fueled by the practice, the discipline of silence? That we would listen well that we would take time to just be careful with our words, to ask before we speak, am I trying to justify something? And I fail at this all the time. I'm a massive hypocrite when it comes to even teaching on this. Like I literally should just sit down. But God has something in this for us that I am desperate for all of us to hear. It's something that I need to hear. And I think there's this invitation that we have that we see. Let me put a couple of verses as we close here. Silence helps us remember. Listen, you being silent and you going through a ton of silence is not gonna tame your tongue because we ultimately have a heart issue. So you could make a vow like, I'm never gonna speak again. That doesn't eradicate your sin issue, your sin problem, doesn't eradicate mine. The moments of silence are less about us maybe not saying the wrong thing, although that can be a helpful byproduct, but they're actually moments for us to remember what God has done, who God is, that he's on his throne, that he's upholding everything by the word of his power. Habakkuk 2, verse 20, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth, what? Keep silence before him. Our silence is a way of remembering God is sovereign, God is in control, I can rest. Psalm 46, verse 10, be still. 
or be silent and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. God is going to get his glory. God's purposes will prevail. The invitation for us is to remember that, to be still, to be silent. Psalm 62, verse one. For God alone, my soul waits in silence. For him, from him comes my salvation. That's the place of rest. Not me trying to self-justify with my words, but rather resting and saying, God alone, my soul I wait in silence because I know, God, you're going to bring salvation. And that what the psalmist longed for, what the psalmist wanted desperately to see, we actually know. What we know is the silence of Jesus that actually brought our salvation. This is why Isaiah would prophesy in Isaiah 53, he was oppressed and, and he was afflicted and yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened open not his mouth. The one man in the world who had never used his words in a sinful way, the one man who actually could have justified himself and said, I have done nothing wrong, was silent. And he allowed people to speak words of condemnation and to condemn him. And he was condemned in your place and in my place for all the things, not only the words we speak, but even deeper than that, what they reveal about my heart condition and your heart condition. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, and he didn't open his mouth so that he would ultimately pay the ultimate price by going to the cross and dying in your place and in my place. And that secures then our salvation. That secures this place of rest and of confidence where we don't have to self-justify anymore. We can rest in God and what he has accomplished through his son. And then we can actually hear, not our words, but the words that are spoken over us. And so church, rest in this as we close. Zephaniah chapter three, verse 17. Again, these were words that the author longed to be true. And we know they are because Jesus was silent and secured our salvation. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who has saved He is rejoicing over you with gladness. He is quieting you by his love. He is exulting over you right now, if you're in Christ, with loud singing. We don't have to self-justify. Jesus is our justifier. Jesus is the one who has accomplished it all. And so church, may we be a community that builds one another up, that speaks words of grace, that are as quick to repent when we miss the mark, because we're all going to. We do it all the time. But we would run to Jesus and we would remember his grace and we would celebrate that and we would rest and we would just allow him to sing over us and to say, because of his son, you're my beloved, you're my sons, you're my daughters. And so as we continue in worship now, we're gonna offer our voice, but it's only in response to what Christ has done. It's only in response to the God who is singing over us right now. It's only in response to the God who started the epic worship party from ages past. And we're just joining in right here and right now. So let me pray for us and let's worship together. And let's sing praises to our God for what he has done. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your kindness and your grace. We thank you that because of Jesus, we can actually engage in silence, that we can actually 
rest that we don't have to justify because we've been justified by you. God, we repent of the ways that we have used our words, our speaking, our our tongue to bring more chaos and disorder and disruption to this world. God, we repent of that. God, I repent of that. I pray that you would renew us and make us into the kinds of people and the kinds of church that can bring healing with our words. In a culture and a world that's increasingly polarized and lots of yelling and screaming in person and on social media and all of that, God, may we be a faithful presence and witness. God, would you give us the words to speak when we need to speak? And would you give us the ability to be silent and say, it's okay if I'm misunderstood. It's okay if this happens because we know our identity is secure because of Jesus. And so God, we thank you that right now because of your son, you're rejoicing over us with loud singing, that you're glad that we're part of the family. And thank you that you invite us right now to use our voices to worship you. And so God, I pray as we do that, that you would get your glory and that we would experience a deep and abiding joy. We love you, we thank you, and we pray these things in Jesus' good name, amen.